John and chapter 17. There we are. John chapter 17. We will read the whole chapter, and the reason we'll do so is because I'm finally wrapping up on uh, our study of this book, and so rather this chapter, the high priestly prayer of our Lord. So we are considering the last three verses of uh, this chapter, um, rather the last 225 and 26. So I'm reading the whole of it so that we can maintain uh, the context and also so that we can properly just wrap up this um, chapter. John 17 and this one. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine. And I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me 
and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I have made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. What a prayer. There is nothing like this in the whole of the Bible. One, therefore, that uh, deserves to be given uh, attention, which we have done. And indeed, it is one that really all of us every so often should be thinking about. It is a prayer that ends a speech that our Lord gave in the upper room. And it is introduced in these words. Chapter 13 and verse 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, here it is, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. That's the background. We're being told why the Lord spoke as he spoke, why the Lord prayed as he prayed on this occasion, why he even had the Lord's Supper, the Passover, as it was called then. It was in order to express his own love for his people. There's a sense in which God is a benevolent God. He loves all his creatures. He loves all those whom he has made. He, he loves those who are made in his image. So it's an open statement for anyone to be able to experience something of God's love. But there is a peculiar, a special love that God has for his elect, that he has for his own people. And it is this love that is being talked about here. It is this love that we find as we come to the very end of this entire section when we read in the Lord praying and saying that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. What this means, therefore, is that as we live our Christian lives, one ingredient that ought to stand out above so many others is simply this thought that God loves me. He loves me. This is something which in other religions, it's more me trying to win a favor from the divine being, doing my best so that the, the judge of all the earth should be one who finally might be able to say, okay, I think you are good enough. Let me allow you in. If that's the way you think as a Christian, you are depriving yourself of true biblical Christianity. True biblical Christianity is one that basks, basks under the rays of 
God's love. And as we come to the end of this chapter, you cannot miss it. In the prayer that we have looked at, we have seen that Jesus prayed for himself, he prayed for the apostles, and finally he prayed for the rest of us, beginning in verse 20. And in praying for the rest of those who would believe from the witness of the apostles, he first of all prayed for our unity, that that way we might be uh, a testimony to the fallen world. We also noticed in the second place that he prayed for us that we might persevere and in persevering arrive in heaven. The last request is not really a request. It is more of a statement of cause and effect. And so when we read it, you will notice that in a sense, he's not asking for something. Previously, he would ask, and you couldn't miss that he was asking. For instance, in verse 24, he had said, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you have loved me before the foundation of the world. That's a request. He's saying, I want these to be with me in heaven. But as we read verse 25 and verse 26, I want to challenge you. I'll read it again. But I want to challenge you to listen carefully. And you will notice that it will be hard to say this is what he is asking. Verse 25. O oh, righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and this know that you have sent me. Not quite a request there. Let's read verse 26. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Again, not quite a request there. So the question then comes, what's happening here? And essentially, the Lord there is making a statement. And as I said, he's making a statement that deals with a cause and its effect. Something which, if it does happen, there is going to be a consequence. And it is that which I want us to think about. Because in a sense, it is praying, but it is more praying in terms of that this which would normally occur, yes, that I might rejoice in seeing it happen. That I might rejoice in seeing it happen. Well, let's quickly look at this. What is the cause and what is the effect? The cause is captured in the word knowing. It's a phrase that occurs quite a number of times. Jesus is addressing the Father for the very last time in this prayer and says, O righteous Father. Notice how many times the word know appears. Even though the world does not know you, that's one, I know you, that's two, and these know that you have sent me, that's three, I made known to them your name, that's four, and will continue to make it known, that is, five times. Five times. And really, when he goes on to say that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them, later on I will come and bring it out, there is again the aspect of knowledge there. But let's not force it. Five in two verses is enough to say to us there is something here being spoken about. And I want you to underline that, at least if not with a pen, 
in your own mind. And it is this, that our experience of the blessings of God, the riches of God, the salvation of God hangs with the aspect of knowledge. Knowledge. It does not bypass the mind. God speaks to us. God reveals things to us. And as we capture them with our minds, they then come to our hearts and settle. It's a principle we must never, ever overlook. And that's the reason why the most blessed Christians, the most effective Christians, are intelligent Christians. And by intelligent, I don't mean they are born bright, but they are individuals who deliberately say, I am going to know God, I'm going to know about God, I'm going to learn concerning the things of God and they discipline themselves to do so. You will find that over time, these are the Christians you get to admire. Why? Because so much hangs on this word, knowing. Let's go back to the beginning of this prayer. And the thing that I wanted to notice as we make our way through is just how many times Jesus is speaking about either knowing or teaching individuals or simply the word of God itself being available. I want you to notice the number of times this keeps coming up because it's the primary cause out of which everything grows, including salvation. We've gone through this prayer, but since we are wrapping up, I want us to quickly get back to it. Notice, as Jesus begins, I won't read verse 1. Let's quickly just go into verse 3. Verse 3, And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. In other words, even coming to salvation is not something that happens because people did something to you and consequently bypassed your brain. It is something we come to because certain information has been given to us. And in this particular case, it is the gospel. As we hear the gospel and we believe the good news, we believe in our Lord Jesus Christ, we come to know God. That's the way we come to salvation. That they might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Later on, this is the way he puts it. And again, I want you to notice that he considers his job done by having revealed the Father and so on to the people. Verse 6, I have manifested, I have made known your name to the people whom you have given me. Verse 7, now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. So that teaching, manifesting, knowing, and then words. Verse 8. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received, and they have come to know in truth that I came from you. Remember, even in our text, it was there. Even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. It is there in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. Later on, I'll just skip the next passages. We come to verse 12. Verse 12. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, 
which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in them. So I'm, I'm speaking words, they are hearing me, they are believing, and as they are doing that, what is happening? They are experiencing joy, cause and effect. And in case you are missing it, verse 14, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them. And then finally, verse 17, verse 17, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Or as he puts it at the very end, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Now brethren, we need to, to see this. Especially when we think in terms of the progress of the kingdom of God. The progress of God's kingdom on earth is not genetic. It's not DNA. It's not because I have given birth to some children, therefore they will become the children of God. It's not that. It is through the spread of the word, the spread of the gospel, and so forth. And hence, the beginning of that prayer, O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, that's the reason why the world is lost. It is the loss of the true knowledge of our God. And as a result, therefore, the world is in sin, the world is in degradation, and the world is in death. Our job is that of sharing this saving knowledge. Sharing this saving knowledge. Every generation needs to be re-evangelized. Literally, every generation. The moment we seize from doing that is the moment that the Christian faith begins to lose ground. The world is lost because it does not know God. Our job is to share. The Holy Spirit's job is that of, as it were, sealing this truth into the hearts of the people. Because this is not simply head knowledge, it is what we call experiential knowledge. It is in that sense saving knowledge. As individuals come to have this truth open their eyes, this truth transform them from the inside, that's how they become Christians. In the book of James, in uh, chapter 2, James warns about head knowledge. And he says that's the knowledge that demons have. Demons have. Um, James 2 and verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. James challenges, show me your faith apart from your works. And I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one? You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. And then he adds, do you want me to show, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? In other words, yes, even when we have shared about God, so that the world knows concerning this God. Unless the Spirit of God works upon that truth, 
into the hearts of the people, strictly speaking, they still don't know him. They know him. They can even become professors in a Bible college. But it is only when the Spirit takes this truth and uses it to pry open their hearts so that that knowledge becomes experiential. It becomes saving. That's when we can say the world now knows him. And that's, I hope, where we are. I hope that's where we are. Because it is possible, brethren, to have head knowledge. It is possible to even be baptized, join the church, and actively doing all kinds of church activities, and yet completely lack this real, personal, experiential, saving knowledge of God. May I say again, with everything else that you might have, you still go to hell. You still burn in hell forever. Because strictly speaking, you did not have this saving knowledge. Eternal life is to know him, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. Well, Jesus in this text is saying he has put into place the cause which will produce the effect in a few moments. And it is this. I know you and this know you have sent me. I made known to them your name. But I love this and will continue to make in other words, our Lord Jesus Christ is one who is in the actual business of revealing God to us. Remember this high priestly prayer is really a prayer he ought to have been making in heaven after he has already ascended. And it is a task that he continues to fulfill. The task of making known to us this God. How does he do that? Well, before we speak in terms of the work of the Spirit, it is that he deliberately makes the teaching and preaching of his word central to the mission of the church. Central to the mission of the church. So that even on the day of Pentecost, when the church was born, we are told there that the first disciples devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They were committed to learning the word of God, that they might know more and more of this God. This is not an accident. It is deliberate on the part of Jesus Christ in order to ensure that even when he has gone to heaven, he will continue to make known to us who this God is. Turn with me to Ephesians and chapter 4. Ephesians and chapter 4. I will continue to make your name known to them. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 9. Let me begin from verse 8. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he, notice, gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions? the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens that he might feel all things. 
We saw that this morning. And then here it is. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, and the connection there is really the shepherd teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith, and there it is, and of the knowledge of the Son of God. To mature manhood, this is now the effect, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Brethren, it's crucial. When we meet as we are doing now, when we meet for Bible studies, we don't just look and say, okay, you know, this one is wearing a trouser, so he can actually also be in front and start teaching us. No. We recognize that Jesus has given teaching gifts to his church. We, we honor him because he's got a role that he is playing. He's given us these gifts. And we, as his people, drink from the wells of these teachings. It is delivered on the part of the Lord because he is continuing to make the name of God known to us generation after generation after generation. Later on, I'll be speaking in terms of going beyond life teachers but we will come to that in my conclusion for now all I want to do is add that he also continues to do this not simply by giving us teachers but by the Holy Spirit making those lessons very very real to us very real you can be sitting with your brother or your sister, your husband, or your wife, in the same pew for 20 years, and your friend goes to hell, and you don't. You were listening to exactly the same preaching. Your friend makes a complete shipwreck of his life, completely, and then you don't. It's not so much the teacher. It is the Spirit of God sealing his truths into your heart. Hence what we're learning in Ephesians when Paul speaks about the spirit of wisdom and revelation, that we might know him better. It's something that we, we, we must also be very deliberate about. We must, as individuals, as we come to listen to the preaching of God's word or wherever it might be, to just pray, Lord, speak to me. Master, speak. Your servant is listening. Teach me your words, Lord. Teach me. And at the end of any teaching session, ask yourself whether there's any truth that has impacted you. Anything that you can carry home with you, that you can chew over something that is revealing who God is to your soul. And may God respond to your prayer by really revealing himself to us. So that's the first, that's the cause. And we're being told here, the world does not know, but we know, because God in this way continues to reveal himself to us. But what is the effect? Very quickly, what is the effect of this? It is to experience God's love and to experience God himself. To experience God's love and to experience God himself. Look at the way he puts it there, halfway through verse 26, 
all the way to the end. That the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Let me begin with that little phrase, in them and in them. All it is saying is in terms of actual experience. Actual experience. Because in a sense, <clears throat> Jesus is in all of us by his spirit. He's in us. Whether you are learning about him and not learning about him is still in us. And as I hope to show you in a moment, this love also does not fluctuate. The love that God has for the Son also now being shared with us. It also does not fluctuate. What fluctuates is our experience of, of Jesus and our experience of his love for us. That's what fluctuates. And hence the statement here that the love with which you have loved me may be in them. In other words, that they may experience something of this. That it might be a, a living reality to them. That they might find peace and tranquility and joy in this love. And in the same way, therefore, that they might genuinely in every way be able to say the Lord Jesus Christ who dwells in me. Earlier on in verse 21, I'll begin from verse 20, Jesus had already spoken about the fact that he is in the Father and the Father is in him and they are in us and so on. Let's just quickly read that again. Verse 20, I do not ask for this only, but also for those who will, be with, who, be, who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. And then he says, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, and that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Again, later on in verse 23, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. So, he is, the, the Father, the Son, that union between them and us is a fact. It happens when we get saved. But this daily consciousness is what many of us perhaps don't live in. And therefore, the circumstances of this world easily rob us of peace, easily rob us of joy, because we are strangers to this in actual experience. So when he's talking about in them and in them, think in terms of experience. That they might experience the love with which you have loved me. That they might experience me in them. What is this love with which the Father has loved the Son? Theologians refer to it as the love of complacency. The love of complacency. It is differentiated from the love of benevolence. The love of benevolence. In fact, even the love of benevolence is sometimes broken into two. Theologians have their way of doing this. And the first being the love of beneficence. But I'll skip the first two. Or I'll marry them together, but I want to concentrate on the love of complacency. So this is the way theologians think. That the love that God placed on us in eternity past when choosing us 
is referred to as the love of beneficence. You can Google all that, by the way, on your own time. And then the love in time that he loves us with as he brings us to himself in salvation is referred to as the love of benevolence. And then the love with which he loves us while we are walking with him in this world and more so when we get to glory is referred to as the love of complacency. Now the modern use of the word complacency is not a very positive word. You know, when people say you're complacent, it's supposed to be a rebuke, isn't it? Uh, it's, it's saying, come on, you know, you better be more active. That's why you're not getting ahead in life. You're too, too lazy and so forth. But the way it is used here, it is, it is a, a love that's not primarily thinking of um, benefiting you. It's not so much thinking of you are in need and therefore let me meet your need. And the reason why that should make sense is the father loving the son, what need does the son have? What need? Jesus in all eternity loved by the father in all eternity what 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 need is the father meeting zero it is a love of pleasure finding pleasure in somebody finding delight in somebody it's 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 the kind of love that can be seen between a bride and a bridegroom. It's, it's a, it, it's, you know, I hope in a, as a couple you're able to say that to, to each other, that, you know, the, the world can close you off completely, just the two of you. You don't miss them. Don't miss them. Just you two together. It's that love. Um, it's captured for us in Zephaniah. Let's just quickly find that little book in the Old Testament. Zephaniah. In the very last chapter. If you need help, you can begin with Malachi, then go to Zechariah, and then Haggai, I think it is, yes, and then Zephaniah. So just sort of go backwards. You know, these minor prophets, you can continue looking for them until we close in prayer. <laughs> so just begin from Malachi going backwards. And thankfully, it's the very last chapter, chapter 3. Listen to this. I begin from verse 16. Maybe we can go backwards because it's, it's speaking about Israel, but obviously speaking futuristically, it ends up being the New Testament church. Verse 14. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgment against you. He has cleared, cleared away all your enemies. Rather, cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day, this is the point now, it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst. A mighty one who will save. And this is the phrase. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you 
with loud singing. And then I'll gather those of you who mourn for the festival and so on. So I just want you to, to, to imagine this. This is not love that is saying, you, you know, I, 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 I want to express mercy towards you because of something. It's, it's, it's a love of, of rejoicing in you, a love of, of satisfaction in you, a love of, of delight in you. It is that love that is being spoken about here. And that's an eternal love that continues between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There is a complete satisfaction and fulfillment and delight and pleasure in the persons of the Godhead. And that's why when God created this world, it was never out of a sense of need. Never. God would have been perfectly happy without this universe. Perfectly happy. Because in the Godhead is complete satisfaction. That the love with which you have loved me may be In other words, that that's the love that they may know and experience. A God who delights in his people. Who, who loves his people in that way. Who finds pleasure in his people. Now, deliberately, I began from the end talking about experience, and I also dealt with knowledge. There's no way you're going to know this. Experience, as you're walking with the Lord in this world, there's no way this is going to be yours when your knowledge of God is this small. And all you're interested in is uh, BookTube or Facebook or social media, that's all. And, and, and it's politics, and it's sports, and it's politics, and it's sports, and it's politics, and it's sport, and so on and so forth. Then, when it comes to Christianity, just, just enough to, to get by. What a miserable believer you are, especially when trials come into the world. But when you have invested much, in knowing this God, you become like a very deep river, very deep. That although at the bottom the waters are jumping over rocks and stones and other things, at the top it's still. Still. Why? Because of your knowledge of God, the cause, that is the effect. You know my father loves me. He loves me. He truly loves me. I'm in a loving relationship with God. And you are there very conscious that the second person of the Trinity is with you. In all this, he is with you. And therefore you can say to the people of the world, never feel sorry for me. I'm in the best of relationships. In a love relationship with God. Brethren, that's the challenge with which Jesus closes this chapter. Therefore, let me plead with you to build your life on this vital cause and effect of spiritual reality. In other words, 
make it your business to grow in your knowledge of God through Jesus Christ. Make it your business. Don't treat it as, you know, one of those things while you are, as it were, enjoying the world and trying to maximize on, on this world. No. Make it your business because it is cause and effect. Cause and effect. And one of the ways is protect the Lord's day. Protect it. You have six days to, to do all these extra things. Try and maximize on the Lord's day with the things of God. Being a church as much as is possible, listening intently as you are being taught God's word. Be in Bible study so that you are learning more and more of this God. May I add what I didn't mention previously? Read good Christian books. Buy them. Read them so that you might understand more and more and more of the things of God. And I want to assure you, the more you know and the Spirit of God burns these things into you, the more in an experiential way you will know that whatever it is that is happening around you, God loves you with a love of complacency, a love of delight, a love of finding pleasure in you. Not because of something about you, but because you are in Christ. Or in this particular case, because Christ is in you. And God delights in his son. And you are being formed more and more into his image. So that in itself causes God to rejoice over you with singing. To quieten you with his love. He loves you. He loves you. He loves you. Amen.